before we we are in Matthew chapter 27, but before we dive in there, I just want to say that um, one of the things that helps define individual churches are their traditions. And one of the things that I think helps define us as New Covenant Fellowship is our tradition of our Thanksgiving share service. And so for decades, we have given an opportunity to people in our church family uh, as a part of honoring God on Thanksgiving to share the greatness of God, to share what God is doing in in your life. And so our share service, I think, is the 24th of November. And I just want to, if you've been here for a while, you know what to expect and what's coming. But I want to open that up. And I'd appreciate if you would just pray and ask the Lord, God, would you have me to share a testimony? Some people read poems. Some people play or sing songs. uh, Some people give just a few sentences. Others take a little longer to tell what God has been doing in their lives. But I want to open that up to you. And I think that is something that uh, helps define us as a body as we rejoice in what God is doing in each heart here. So put that on your prayer list and uh, let me know as soon as the Lord prompts your spirit. If you're the one that you, you would like to say a few words. Having said that, we are in the gospel of Matthew 27. Matthew 27 is a very, very long chapter. But today we will, with our final verses, um, conclude chapter 27. And it's been a long haul, if you will, because it begins with Jesus being drugged before the the high priests and the chief priests. And it ends, as we will see this morning, with Jesus in the ground. Now, this passage actually is not the most popular passage because, um, as we learned last week, Jesus died at the cross and we went through the times of that. And when Jesus dies, we our tendency is to want to rush right into chapter 28 for the resurrection. But there are some very important things that take place that exalt God and edify the saints in these verses. And I do not want to miss them, though I don't know anybody that has chosen any of this, these verses as their life verse. I think you will find that they are very important and edifying. So we're going to talk about the burial of Christ. And in particular, we're going to look in this passage at the rich disciple and the guarded tomb. I want to begin by reading verse 57. The rich disciple. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. I'm going to stop there. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for a long time, and we've literally followed Jesus from His birth, and then we followed Him to His anointing of the ministry when the Holy Spirit descended upon Him, and then we literally, or 
figuratively, but were there in spirit, followed him as he traveled the countryside from town to town, preaching about the kingdom of God. And one of the things that continued to come up in his teaching were warnings about wealth, warnings about being rich. And he it's not that money or wealth in and of itself is evil, but he warned his disciples that when you take a great amount of wealth or riches and you combine it with a heart that might be a little greedy, a little bit sinful, it's not a good combination. And it can actually keep people out of the kingdom of God. And then we saw the real life example of the rich young ruler where Jesus presented him with an option. And in essence, either you give up your wealth or you give up the kingdom of God. And sadly, he walked away. And Jesus went so far as to say that it's easier. Hold on, let me think, get this straight. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Of course, that's humor. But the idea is you're too big with your wealth and your riches. You got to get some of those things away away from you so that you can squeeze in or sneak in or walk into the kingdom of heaven. And yet in this passage, we are introduced to a guy who I guess you might say made it through the eye of a needle. He's a disciple and he's wealthy and it did not keep him out of the kingdom of God. And we could spend a lot of Perhaps we could use this as a great teaching on, so how do you make it into the kingdom of God if you're a wealthy person? And we will later on look at maybe some application of how that's possible. How these guys that have all this money yet still serve the Lord in in an incapacitating way. But we're just going to look at that briefly later on because that's not why Matthew purposes to point out that He's not just a disciple, but this guy is a rich disciple. He points it out for a different reason. And it's very important to our story. He makes it a focal point because it is a matter of prophecy. In Matthew 27, we have been seeing that almost Every detail that takes place in the final week, really the final hours of Christ's life, are fulfillment of prophecy. It's incredible how detailed God is in laying things out. And when it comes to the burial of Christ, there's a prophecy that we're going to look at in the Old Testament. And there's a prophecy we will look at in the New Testament. These have to be fulfilled in order for God to be the God that he is, a truthful God promise-keeping God, and in order for Jesus to be certified or verified as God's Messiah, whom he sent into this world. So as we've been following Jesus' steps, I want to read a prophecy in Isaiah 53 um, that we read at least once a year during Easter time, if not more. Chapter 53, Isaiah, I'll read 7 and 8. This will be familiar to many of you. He was oppressed. Of course, this is describing Jesus' crucifixion and suffering. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And we read where Jesus didn't open his mouth 
though he is being unjustly uh, prosecuted. Verse 8, by oppression and the judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Then we read in verse 9 this. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So you read that and you get the idea that according to Isaiah, that there's going to come a time if this is God's son, he sends the Messiah. He is going to be scheduled or it looks like he's actually going to be buried with criminals. And yet somehow in the end, he actually will be buried among the wealthy. So this needs to take place. However, it's going to work. It sounds kind of like a crazy uh, prediction, but it's important and it serves as important evidence in affirming Jesus as the son of God. So just hold on to that. We'll see how that unfolds in just a minute. That's the Old Testament prophecy that has to come true. The New Testament prophecy in Matthew 12. We've read this. It's been weeks, months, actually, since we've read this. But remember, the Jewish leaders were always after Jesus, and whenever they came to him with anything, even questions that really sounded like, oh, they're really interested in kingdom things, they weren't. They're only interested in making him look like a fool. And they came to him in Matthew 12. He had already performed countless miracles, and they asked for another sign in a a way to tempt him, in a way to trick him. But here's, in his response, Jesus makes a prediction about his death. So in chapter 12, verse 39, he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he makes a prediction. With these to these Jewish rulers that when the son of man comes and he is in put in the ground, he won't stay there. In a matter of three days, he will come out of that ground. He'll be spit out of the ground, if you will, just like Jonah was spit on a dry land from the fish. And we know from previous passages that the ground cannot hold Jesus, though he died for our sins the ground can't hold him because the ground can only hold those who are truly, truly guilty. And so he comes out of the ground because it has no hold on him. So this has to happen in order for Jesus to be the son of man. So for now, that's where we are. You remember he was nailed on the cross at 9 a.m. And then he breathed his last. He saved his last bit of energy To cry out his final cry about being forsaken. And then he gave up his spirit. And so where we are is Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he has given up his spirit. He has died. We also know this is a Friday. Saturday is a Sabbath. But not just any Sabbath. The city is crowded with people. Teeming with people. Because it is the Passover Sabbath. Very, very important Jewish holiday religious festival for the Jews. 
And for it to be a Sabbath, that means there's a lot of preparation that needs to take place because God has law after law, rule after rule about how you can't do work on a Sabbath. All of this stuff has to be done in advance. If you want to eat on this day, you need to prepare it the day before. And so there's countless rules, but among those stipulations about keeping the Sabbath holy is this interesting rule or law that goes with it. And in order to properly prepare for the Sabbath, if there happened, if you happen to live in a time or you happen to live in a culture where they hang people or crucify people or hang them on trees and you are a person of faith, you have to get those bodies off the trees before the Sabbath begins. We find this in Deuteronomy and we're not accustomed to this, but this was not so uncommon in the Old Testament times, chapter 21, this is the law. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. And that was in the context of how to keep the Sabbath holy. So, in a sense, though the Jews have crucified their enemy, they're in a little bit of predicament because they have a religious holiday to celebrate and it starts at six o'clock. And in order for them not to defile the land, not to sin against God, not, not as if they haven't already, but in their minds... They're righteous and we don't want to sin against God. We have to get these bodies off the crosses by six o'clock. So they're in a little bit of a predicament. Here's how John puts it in chapter 19. Since it was a day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, meaning the Passover Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate, so here's their solution to their dilemma. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. In quotes. And again, the scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. So it sounds like an unusual request. They're already suffering, but we need to speed things up because we take God serious and we can't have these guys, these criminals on this tree. So the custom was to break their legs. And you know that he was nailed through his feet and through his hands, which brings the body weight onto his lungs and his diaphragm. And I don't know if you've ever hung, even just from a pull-up bar or something like that, 
it does cause your body to bear down in your lungs. And after a while, it's hard to breathe. So they're, they're being tortured, not only from the pain of the piercings, but what they would do is use their legs to lift themselves up just to trade off some of the, the pain. Lift themselves up just enough to get some weight off so they can take a breath. Now, what this process would do is, of course, if they break the bones, then there's nothing there to enable them to lift up and to continue with their labored breathing. And so the Romans would break their legs. They had wooden mallets as if the crucifixion wasn't brutal enough. They had wooden mallets. And so in our text, in essence, one of the Roman soldiers, whoever he was, takes the wooden mallet. He goes up to one of the thieves on one side of Christ and he crushes the bones in his legs. And then he walks over to the other criminal on the cross and he takes that wooden mallet and he crushes and pulverizes the bones in his legs so they can no longer lift up. But then when he comes to Jesus, he doesn't do this. He thinks to himself, wait a minute, I can't do this. There's a prophecy written about this. <laughs> Not at all. He's a Roman. He doesn't know about the prophecies written in this. He does not do it because there's no need. Jesus actually died quickly on the cross. Other guys were still going. After this... They would do what they called the final death blow, where they would take the spear and they would stab it into the side and the heart of the criminal just to make sure they're dead. Why didn't they just do that in the first place? Because it's about torture. It's all about showing your enemies this is what happens to you when you cross us. Absolutely Brutal. So for good measure. Now this they do. Pierce Jesus's side. This is incredible. I think. Because what we want to note. In all of these stories. As we piece together the gospels. Is that this is. Life as they know it. In other words. All the individual people in this story. They're just going about their day. Like they would any other day. So you have the Jews, well, they're on a mission. We got to get these guys off the cross. Of course, we got, we got to worship God tomorrow with clean hands and a clean heart. We can't have people hanging on the tree according to the word of God. So they are making whatever efforts they need to go and live their life the way they think it needs to be. Of course, the Roman soldiers, that's their lives. Okay, you tell me to break the legs on these guys, I break the legs on these guys. Where's the mallet? You know, I got, if the boss tells me to do this, I do it. I'm just taking orders. That's their life. It's the decisions they make. They weigh through. Of course, you got Pilate. He's the great politician and he's presented with a dilemma. We got to get these guys off the cross. And there's a reason for it because in, in essence, there's a threat. Uh, well, no, we won't get uh, save that for later. Anyway, look, uh, I, I don't want to ruffle your feathers. You got to take what you need to get, the, get these guys off the cross. So people are making the decisions they need to make. And yet all of these individual parts, all of these individual decisions and precise timing 
is actually fulfilling the precise plan of God in redeeming his people. If that's not incredible, I don't know what is. So no was you have people on earth here living their lives, making decisions, doing things that their hearts are telling them to do, fulfilling their intentions, and in fulfilling the intentions of their hearts, they are literally fulfilling the very precise plan of God because God is a sovereign God and He rules over all things. So that's how this is playing out. Psalm 34.20 He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. It was not standard to keep their legs whole. So as the Roman soldiers come, they make this decision. I mean, they could have done it. Why not? It's extra measure, right? They, they pierced him for extra measure. He's already dead. They did not Usher a single blow. There was not a single bone broken. And then Zechariah 12, 10 is the scripture about when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And that's, that's a prophetic scripture. Describing what will happen to God's son, the Messiah, when he sends them. So in going about their day... They are literally certifying, verifying that this is no one else, none other but the Son of God. As they do what they intend to do, God is doing what he has intended to do from eternity past. Psalm 24 opens with this verse. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. All that is in the earth. Is God's. All that is happening is under the mysterious sovereign rule of God. Now that's incredible to me. That's incredible that mankind can make decisions and do things according to his ability to do it, and yet it line up with what God has already determined would take place. That's why God, of course, can prophesy things. Because not only does he know. But his sovereign power enables and makes things happen. The irony. And yet here I am reminded that it was the Jewish leader's intent to put him to death. Slaughtering him. And we have this picture of of the Lord of the Sabbath being slaughtered. To prepare for the Sabbath. The other thing that is happening here, which I think is absolutely incredible, is that's like the, the, the more evil man gets, and we've been looking at how low man can stoop in chapter 27. I mean, even his friends, even Peter, I don't know him. What are you talking about? Oh, just evil gets people at their weaknesses, always crouching at the door, and it, and it got in. Pilate, the Jews... Judas, Peter, and yet as evil as things seem to be flowing, the more man sins in this picture, the closer he is to his own redemption. Because by God's plan, Christ has to be put to death. So not only do you have the sovereignty of God over this, but you have 
man being as evil as he can be in some senses. And yet it's like no matter what they throw and how much Jesus suffers and how terrible it is, that's the very thing that needs to happen to actually redeem him from the evil that he is practicing. It's it's incredible what we're reading about here. See, you, you can't beat God. You can't defeat God. You can mock him in human form. You can pierce him. You can hurt him. You can grieve him. But you can't beat him. Because no matter what humanity does, good or evil, it fits into the redemptive plan of God to bring him glory. I mean, what kind of God yields that power? That's creepy to me. That whether you're on his side or, or against him, that whatever you do in the end will bring him glory. Now, if we're against him, he brings himself glory by executing his holy wrath on us, which is a good, righteous thing to do because we deserve it. So you see, we, whether you're for him or against him, you cannot beat God. No matter how we rebel against God, we only beat ourselves. We only hurt ourselves because in the end, God always gets the victory. And in the end, God always gets the glory. And heaven is a place that is filled with nothing but the glory of God. So in order to keep track with this prophecy, you think, okay, whatever happened with what you started out with, what about the burial in this rich guy? Well, in order to fulfill it, what we have to do is create a scene where Jesus looks like he's going to be buried with criminals. But in the end, he's buried with the rich. So what happens here when you have criminals on the cross, the bodies need to be disposed of. You don't leave them up there forever. And so the standard procedure for the Romans or the Jews was that you take them off the cross, uh, the tree, whatever. And um, if you have means to take care of them, you take care of them. If you don't, you, you throw them in a pit that you've dug or perhaps you Take them to um, Gehenna, the trash pile that's always burning. Any trash in the city always goes there. So it's a constant flame. Maybe they are thrown in there and incinerated because they have to be uh, reckoned with. Otherwise, you've got scavengers. You've got, you got just gross things. Well, here's Jesus. Now, his disciples have scattered. Uh, he has the women there that always hang with him no matter what. They're always with him, but they don't have the means to take care of his body properly. And most of his disciples aren't even from the city. They, if they did have a place to bury him, it would be too far away. I mean, we're, we're racing the clock here in order for this prophecy to take place. Enter the scene. This rich guy named Joseph. Verse 57. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple. So he's not just a disciple, he's rich. He's not just rich, he's a disciple. He's not just a rich disciple, he is a leader. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. He was present when all of this injustice was going on against Jesus when he's being falsely accused. And everybody's rallying against him. Joseph is there. As a member of the ruling class, he's a wealthy guy, but he's a smart guy. When he speaks, people listen, because that's how you get there. So he's very well respected. Respected member of the council. And verse 43 says, he was also looking for the kingdom of God. 
And he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. So not only is he smart, wealthy, powerful and respected, but he also is seeking the kingdom of God. You know, when you seek, even though he is with snakes, surrounded by snakes, when you seek the kingdom of God, you find it. That's what scripture tells us. And that's what his heart wanted. He was seeking it and he found it in Christ. And now he takes courage. Luke 23, 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph. Here's how Luke puts it. From the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council. Good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ. So he's good. He's righteous. He was not in agreement with this sentence. I don't know how many of them stood by his side. He may have been by himself. But he would have no part with it. John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. He's not just a, a disciple, but he's a secret disciple. I think the reasons are probably obvious because when you are up one among your enemies, or one among many, you're in a very risky situation. And in that culture, in that way, if he would have been found out that he was a follower of Christ, everything that he was and owned was at risk. Uh, if he, he possibly could have been put to death, if at the very least ostracized. No, he wouldn't be wealthy anymore because nobody would want to do business with him. His family would be at risk in their well-being, his well-being. So everything here is put up for grabs. Now he's a secret disciple when all this is taking place. But now that Jesus is dead, he comes out. He takes courage and he comes out. I guess he gets to the point where he thinks to himself, I may be found out and I may not, but I have to give Jesus, my, my Lord, a proper burial. That's on me. That's what he's feeling. That's what he's thinking. So the fear has dissipated. That's maybe a good time to double back and think, how do we apply this idea that a rich man can actually make it through the eye of the needle? How is that possible? Well, I think we get a little glimpse, perhaps, in this passage. What did he do with his wealth? Where was his heart? His heart was for God, first and foremost. And his wealth and his resources were just used as a means to bring God glory. As a means to worship him, as a means to care for him. So when it was time to give them up, he gave them up. You think about, this was his own personal grave. Now, thought had gone into this. It was hewn out of the rock. And to give Jesus this kind of burial, it is costly because there are spices involved. But Jesus comes before his own well-being. And so his great resources are not keeping him away from God. They are being used as a means to worship God. And they're put at his disposal. So if you ever wanted to wonder... Well, is it possible for the rich to make it into heaven? Absolutely it is. So here you have this guy. This leader, well-respected, upper-class guy. 
And he's the one with the tender heart to care for this body. This beaten, bloodied body. And so he goes and he removes him from the cross. And he has with him what you need to give this man a proper burial. He has the expensive spices. He has the linens. He will do the work himself. So it takes great courage. Isn't it interesting? God always has his man. And here we are racing the clock. How will this prophecy be fulfilled? God always has his man. And so Joseph takes him. He prepares him for the burial. He has some help, by the way. We don't learn that in this gospel. We learn it a little later in other gospels. There's another guy who's also of the ruling class, kind of like Joseph. And he's been thinking about this too, and he was also a secret follower. Perhaps, I think it's John 3 that he is introduced. And he's the one that wanted to question Jesus about, well, how do you get born again? You climb back, how can you be born again from your mom? You know, that's a one-time thing. And that's, of course, Nicodemus. So these two wealthy guys with tender hearts that have secretly been following the Lord, now they come out in the open and they pull their resources together. So here comes Nicodemus with about 70 of 75 pound sack of salt and spices to preserve this. They didn't embalm. The Jews didn't embalm like the Egyptians, but they uh, cared for the bodies and they put spices um, so that, of course, the bodies wouldn't, the odors wouldn't overtake people. Here's how John puts it in chapter 19. After these things, Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Christ. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. They came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Racing the clock. You don't even have time to bring them far. It just so happens. Not only does God have a man, but this man has a tomb that is within carrying distance of the place of crucifixion. And so there they are. These two upper class guys tenderly taking care of him. And they would take the linens and probably start with the hand and work their way up and gently wrap the arm and then start at the feet and work their way up and wrapped the legs and they had a special shroud for the head and they lay him in this tomb and they seal it with a rock and probably wax. Again, you don't want the stench eventually coming out. So they join teams and collaborate in worshiping God in this way. Matthew 27, 60 and they laid his own and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, laid a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. 
course, they, they closed the tombs off because otherwise you could have grave robbers. That was a common thing in that day. You'd have scavengers and so forth that would go in there to desecrate the bodies. So there you have the prophecy fulfilled. It looked like with the other criminals, he's just going to be thrown into a pit or he's going to be thrown into the trash heap. And yet he was given the burial of the rich. Now he lies among the rich. For that to happen, God was moving in hearts. Because as Joseph and Nicodemus are going about their day and they're they're seekers of God, they're thinking about God, they're thinking about life, they're seeing what's happening and what has happened to Jesus, there came a point of time where the thought entered their mind, we need, I need to take care of his body. And then just at the right time, that seed was planted and it comes to fruition to where it gets to the point where we have to do this. And so there they are and they show up to take care of the body of Christ so that prophecy can be fulfilled. God is an amazing God. And we see it right here in this passage. How about... The prophecy that Jesus made on his own. You know, a lot of people are three days and three nights. I've had people come to me very confused. I've had people come to me. They read articles about Jesus wasn't in there three days and three nights. Because if you do the math, and it's true, if you do the math, according to our idea of time, it was not three full days and three full nights that he was in the tomb. So what do we do with this? Scripture's wrong. We're, we're practicing the Sabbath and the resurrection Easter on the wrong day because he didn't rise from on Sunday because he couldn't have been in the tomb. It just gets really, really messy. But the Jewish mindset, we find this in the Talmud. The Jewish mindset is that a day or any part of the day was considered the whole day. They called it a, don't know that I'm pronouncing it right, but an ona or ana, O-N-A. And the teaching is, the mindset is that any part of a day is considered the whole day and night. So Jesus is put in the grave before the Sabbath, which would be a Saturday. So he's put in the grave Friday. And even though he's not there long, that's the day. That's a whole day. And he is there the whole day Saturday. That's a whole day. That's two. And then first thing Sunday is when he rises and he walks out of the tomb. And even though it's just a short part of the day, the Jewish mindset, that's three days. It counts as the whole thing. That's three days and that's three nights. Prophecy fulfilled. The integrity of God's word substantiated. And then lastly, the guarded tomb. Verse 62, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So here we have these ruling body of elders or Jewish leaders who rarely agree on everything, on anything. They agree on this. They happen to be listening to Jesus. And they heard his prophecy. 
And it's not enough that they put him to death. They want to make sure that there's absolutely no chance that he has no legacy, that there's no way that anything about Jesus can live on. They don't want to give the culture any ideas or any opportunities to even start a rumor or gossip of any kind. They want him squashed. And so they want to take precautions, not just to put him to death, but also to secure the tomb, to rule out any possibility. And so they go to Pilate. Of course, Pilate, they threaten him. You know, if you think you had an uproar when Jesus was alive, wait till you see what happens to the Jewish people if, they, if there's rumors that he rose from the dead. So Pilate's like, yeah, we got to do something about that. Take what you need. I don't need any trouble. Have enough headaches of my own. How interesting is it that the enemies of Christ thought it was maybe a possibility at least the disciples would do something. They're thinking, you know, the disciples are going to... Um, they're going to possibly steal his body and start this rumor. The disciples aren't even thinking along those lines. Disciples aren't doing anything to prepare for Jesus' resurrection other than mourning. So you have those that followed him that are just kind of sad and broken and don't really know what's going on. But the leaders, they didn't miss a beat. And he says he might raise that, come out of that grave. We've got to take precautions. Isn't it interesting? So they take precautions. Every precaution they know to make sure there's no way that rumor will break forth. There's no way the body can even be stolen. They seal it with wax, probably put a signet ring on it as proof. It hadn't been tampered with. And the big stone. Interestingly enough, that was a great way to absolutely ensure that nobody would come and steal the body. But it backfired. Because they went to such precautions to make sure nobody would steal the body. And yet, Jesus walks out of the tomb anyway. Which just shows you the power of God. Like everything was against him. And yet nothing man can do can overcome the plan of God. So now the Jews have to come up. We find in chapter 28. Well, now what do we do? The body they, they really is missing. And then they bribe the soldiers to say, uh, actually, the disciples did come to steal it. But here's how I want to close this as we think about this powerful passage. We think about the, 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 the actions and the intent of man, and here we are doing our thing, and yet God is so sovereign that all of the things that man does, it doesn't mean that evil is good, it just means that God uses that to bring himself glory. All of this is going on. And it just drives home the message that Matthew has been teaching us almost in every word. Jesus is king. This is his kingdom. He reigns and rules. But here's what they say in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there, was, there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you catch that? So the preacher here in Acts is saying, you made these plans, you Gentiles and you Jewish leaders, and you put Christ to death by your own volition, by your own daily choice, decision after decision. And yet, that was predestined. By the God that you should be bowing.
before. Because that's how powerful he is. Every known power converges to have their way. And yet God gets his way. John MacArthur says God's providence is not some distant doctrine only for theologians. I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road. It's when you can't explain the trouble you're going through, that you need to understand the providential power of a sovereign God who takes every bit of the diverse data of the universe and controls it all for your good and for his glory and eternal purpose. Whatever happens in your life, whatever you can't understand, whatever you're struggle with, whatever doesn't make sense, whatever trial you meet, may be going through to make it very personal. It all fits. This is a part of it. God is doing it. He is at work. It is for His glory. It's for our good. He is in control. He hasn't abandoned His throne. And our hope and our confidence is in the God who providentially, and if need be miraculously, controls all things to His own intended and eternal purpose. That's why we gather this new covenant fellowship. And one of the things that another thing that defines us is that it's our aim and goal to exalt God and to use passages like this to exalt, to edify the saints and to use the power of God and the power of the gospel to evangelize the lost. May God bless the preaching of his word.